uh, reading parts of Psalm 89. I think you'll see why in a few moments. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Um, And then there's just this outpouring of praise for all that the Lord has done. And I want to skip down to verse 19 where the psalmist continues, Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from my people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in his name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, his own as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandment, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, iniquity with stripes, Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky." Psalm 89 is talking about whom? But it says David. All right, my point uh, is that things are not always as they appear on the surface. It says David. Three times it says David. And I think it is talking about David. But it is also talking about Christ. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, um, I've made a covenant covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to my servant David in verse 3. I think he's pretty clearly talking about the promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your house and your throne I I will establish forever. Um, But then he goes on to talk about in the context of talking about David, he goes on to say that um, he shall cry to me, you are my father. He will be his firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Um, I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. I don't think he literally means King David there. I think he's, he's clearly talking about David's seed. Uh, now, the reason I bring that up as, a, as an example to start with is, is as we launch into 
Matthew chapter 25, and in the context of Ray, you know, talking about different um, uh, positions that there are in approaching these, these texts. Um, I want to talk a little bit ab about hermeneutics, um, principles of interpretation. How do you come to a text? Um, here's, here's, I, I left this up here. I, I added a couple of terms. Um, and I know, you know, I know exactly why Ray didn't bring them up, and I'm not going to elaborate on them, but, the, but just the terms will come up from time to time, so I added a couple. Uh, different ways, different positions that have been taken um, on what is going on and, and what is signified in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Um, there's, this, Matthew 24 starts out, with Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. And then the, the disciples ask, well, when's that going to happen? And what's the sign of your coming? When's the end? There's basically three questions, two or three, depending on how you understand what, what the disciples are asking. And it's all about answering those questions. So it is, you know, pretty much every biblical scholar agrees there's some reference to, um, in one way or another, last things. Eschatology, the, you know, the, the theology of what the end looks like. Different uh, interpretations are that uh, there is a, a, a plan of events where there, we have this millennial kingdom spoken of in the book of Revelation, and it's tied up with Jesus' coming. Uh, amillennial, amillennialists understand that to be a figurative thousand years and say that Christ is king right this minute. He's never going to be more king than he is now. He, his kingdom has, has been revealed in his resurrection. And even though the world's a wretched place, um, his kingdom, this in, somewhat invisible but visible in the church kingdom, continues through church history until Christ returns. Um, I added a couple of terms. Uh, we have the dispensationalist, premillennialist position, which um, Ray has, has talked a little more extensively about. Uh, also in dispensationalists, there's, uh, there's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, different uh, ideas about at what point in the, end, in the end times Christ will return during this seven-year period of the tribulation. Uh, so there's, there's debate about that. Uh, and honestly, a lot of this, I'm just... It's, it's, a, it's a much bigger discussion than I think appropriately goes with, you know, just looking at, it, at, at a text. So I'm just going to kind of fly by some things. But there's, even within dispensationalism, there's a, there's a bunch of debate about how things are going to take place. Um, after the tribulation, though, this is what dispensationalists pretty much agree, agree on, there is a thousand-year reign that is literal, Starts day one, ends day number, what would it be, 36,500? You know, is it, am I doing the math wrong? Am I leaving a zero off? I just did that off the top of my head. But a literal 1,000 years. Um, meanwhile, between Christ's rapture, where he takes the church out but doesn't himself come all the way back to earth and between the second coming whenever 
you put the rapture in the dispensational theology. There is still history going on on earth for a time, and the focus of that history is what God is doing with his covenant people, Israel. Um, and stop me if, you, if I say anything you think misrepresents the position. Um, and then we talked about, Ray had uh, historic dispensationalism. I prefer the, the term historic premillennialism because I think, I think dispensational, the dispensational and the historic premillennial, there's, there's such differences. Um, they, the historic premillennialist shares this. Oh, there will be a second coming, then there will be a thousand-year judgment, but the rapture, the, um, the, a, a literal seven-year tribulation, they pretty widely vary. Um, Post-millennialists uh, really kind of fell out of favor beginning after World War I and kind of the, you know, the, it seemed as if the, uh, the death knell of post-millennialism post was sealed with World War II because the, you know, the idea of post-millennialism is that Christ's kingdom would grow not necessarily and take over the earth, but would so influence world history that history would just be on an upward trajectory and things would get better. And uh, people, there were a lot of people that held to that in the 17, 1800s uh, with the advent of uh, particularly effective, destructive and killing technologies and world wars. It's like, no, who are we kidding? That's just not happening. The reason I put it up here, you know, Ray's just sort of elected to kind of take the historical verdict, it seems, and, um, and say that's kind of a, a position that's dying away. There's still some people that hold it. Uh, I'm aware of some folks recently, there's, there's a bit of a resurgence of post-millennialism that um, is a little bit revised, and the idea is that history is going to take shape in such a way that Christ's kingdom will increase and increase in its influence, but it's going to be much more about the prosperity of the, the kingdom itself, the church, the history of the church, even as the world's history may fall off a cliff uh, morally and in a lot of other ways. But they're, they, they're still, there's a growing, still a pretty small minority, but a growing number of people who have sort of re-embraced a form of post-millennialism. Um, then there's this term you'll hear, preterist, um, which is by most of the orthodox, and when I say orthodox, small o, just traditional orthodoxy, is considered outside the pale. Um, I don't know if I want to use the H word heretical, but it's certainly borderline heretical if it's not heretical, because... They don't believe that there is a future second coming in, in Christ. Um, they believe that that was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, in a, in a, in there's all this figurative language about Christ's coming and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was Christ's judgment and that was his second coming. And again, this is a little bit of a fringe set of beliefs, not really considered in the mainstream at all of Christian doctrine. Uh, but it's, it's had an effect, and, and I would contend they're not wrong about everything, because I think that, that, that 
the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD was, in fact, a, a particular historic judgment of God on his old covenant people. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but not too, in too much depth. Uh, so anyway, uh, I am going to just, not going to talk about a whole lot about those. Just want to, because the terms may, may come up again, I'm just going to erase those for now. Uh, leave the rest of it up here and um, make this statement. When you talk about what the Bible says about the end times, I think if you have a, a long conversation about it, you read different writers and different people, what they believe, what they don't believe, I think what you'll find, and I'm just going to make a claim, you can check it out for yourself if you want to read a bunch of theology, the conclusions that people draw aren't really just about what, the, what verses say. It's about how you approach the text in terms of a, of a hermeneutic. You know, what's within bounds in biblical interpretation and what's out of bounds. Um, probably uh, the most popular current eschatological scheme is dispensationalism at this time in history. That's debatable, but, but probably it is. Um, and dispensationalism relies upon two principles of interpretation. Literal expression, we'll start there, and, there's, and, and that leads to another, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but this hermeneutic of, of literalism, is, it's often referred to, that the way you come to the Bible is the Bible speaks in plain language, says what it means, means what it says, and you just take it literally. The reason I just read Psalm 89 is because it's really difficult to apply that consistently. But the idea, and any dispensationalist would admit, oh, of course it's hard. To, you know, there's a lot of material here. There's poetry. There's history. Of course it's, you know, you know, I am the door, said Christ. Everybody understands he's not a wooden thing on a hinge. Um, he's not even a space in, in a wall to pass through. It's a figure for, he is the way. Um, so we all know that not everything is literal, but the rule of interpretation for dispensationalism is you take it literally unless there is an obvious, compelling reason not to. Um, uh, that leads to a second plank in the hermeneutic, which has to do with the nation of Israel, which, because of the The, the principle of interpretation that says you, whenever you can, you take things literally. When Israel is talked about, it means national, ethnic Israel, the way the Old Testament talks about Israel. Um, so uh, dispensationalism sort of springs out of those two principles of interpretation. And it's, it's very um, attractive because it's simple to say, well, you just take it, take it for what it says. The problem is, uh, first of all, we don't speak that way. If, if I have an argument with Tom and I say, oh, you know, Tom got mad at me, he just you know, blew a gasket. You know, Wait, there's, Tom has a gasket? 
how, how do you blow? Yeah, we all use figures of expression all the time. Poetry uses figures of expression. There's all sorts of non-literal language that we commonly use. The Bible uses all sorts of non-literal language. Everybody agrees to that. Um, the, 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 the controversy comes in, in, in to what degree do you emphasize as a rule of interpretation, literal expression. Um, if you really, if you emphasize it highly and you say that Israel always means Israel, it kind of leaves you no alternative but to find um, uh, in the meanings of the text a way to account for all that, to account for how God's going to wind up the history of Israel when he's been dealing with the church for t primarily for 2,000 years. And it kind of channels you towards dispensationalism. Um, I'm not going to espouse a position. Um, I'm not dispensational. I would have at one time called myself uh, leaning towards amillennial. I'm not even sure I'm that anymore. Um, I'm not really sure uh, quite where I fit because every position I find all these inconsistencies with you know, within the scripture Right. Well, this seems to be historically premillennial. There does seem to be a second coming of Christ, but I don't really think the rapture is a, a distinct event from the second coming. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm here, because I, I do see how the thousand-year reign could come after Christ's coming. But then on the other hand, I see other things in Scripture which say, yeah, well, Christ's kingdom is now. You know, we are Christ's kingdom. Well, that seems to mitigate towards amillennialism. Um, I think, uh, as I as I really as I read Matthew twenty four and other things which point to prophecy about the destruction of the temple, I think this is a huge deal in terms of God's judgment on Israel. But I'm certainly not a preterist. You know, I certainly believe that Christ will come in the future and the curtain will come down on history when he reappears uh, to establish his eternal reign. So I, I'm not in any position to espouse a particular position in eschatology because I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable that I've come down solidly myself. Um, what I can talk about is principles of interpretation. And like I said, I really think a lot of the controversy originates there. Um, there's a couple of um, books. You know, when I first came to know the Lord, my background was amongst people that were dispensational. And that's pretty much what I heard. And so I started reading about it. I started realizing, as I, as I became more well-read, I realized that a lot of the people that dispensationalists quoted weren't dispensational. You know, like, you know, Spurgeon is everybody's hero. And he's a Calvinist. And a historic, pre, pre, I believe a historic uh, premillennialist, not a dispensationalist. Well, people who aren't Calvinists, who, who just hate Calvinism, quote Spurgeon all the time. Now, wait a minute. He's a, like a hero of the faith, and he believes different things than what I'm being told is really the only appropriate way to, to, um, to uh, interpret the Bible. So I got some books. Uh, I was 
given to understand. There's a book by J. Dwight Pentecost called Things to Come, and another one by Alva J. McLean from Grace, uh, who was a professor, excuse me, a professor at Grace Theological Seminary called The Great Greatness of the Kingdom. And these were uh, supposed to be the, the seminal works on dispensational theology. And both of them start with the literal hermeneutic, the hermeneutic of literal expression, and they don't really, they, they, they just kind of state it as a presupposition and don't really give a good defense of why it works or how it works. And I, I just have a really difficult time with that, with li- literal expression as a hermeneutic, as a principle. Now, and don't get me wrong, literal expression and literal truth are completely different things. And I think all Orthodox Christians agree that the Bible is literally true. There's no, there should be no question about that. But is it a rule that it's literally expressed, which there's only limited uh, exceptions, and they have to be very, very obvious in order to, to recognize them? I, I can't see that as a principle of, of interpretation for, because there's too many, you know, when there's enough exceptions, it stops being a rule. And, there, and I just personally, and you, you know, I can disagree with, with you good-naturedly on this, I hope, but I just find way too many exceptions to the rule of literal expression to believe that it is a principle that I should bring as a presupposition when I interpret the scripture. Um, so there's, and of course that, that begs the question, well then what do you do instead of that? Do you just kind of take it however you want? And my answer, which a lot of people would agree with me and a lot of people would disagree, is I would, if you'll allow me to come up with a label, I would say I'm a con- contextualist. Um, con- you've heard me saying, con- you know, without making... Uh, an issue of it hermeneutically, context is king. Yeah, that's the the principle, and it's it's more complicated than 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 a principle of literal expression. Uh, but I'm pretty confident that the Lord, in His Word, gives us appropriate context. To, for the most part, there's some things that are pretty mysterious, obviously, or else you know I could nail down a position on eschatology. Uh, but I'm pretty confident that God gives us the context we need to figure out what he needs, what he intends us to know. And I don't have another firm rule that says it's got to be this way unless, or it's got to be this way unless. Here's how you decide what's an allegory. Here's how you decide what's literal. Here's how you decide what's figurative. Which, and then how do you distinguish between what is figurative and what is allegorical? Because there are, you know, Paul says that Hagar, who actually was a literal person, also serves as an allegory. I mean, it, it just gets complicated. But uh, my contention would be context. Context, context, you know, which, 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 which makes the job bigger. Because I don't even always mean immediate context. I'm the whole context. In order to get Matthew 24 and 25 and understand it accurately, I 
think it requires even more context than just understanding what Matthew's all about, although that's certainly important. It's like, what is going on from beginning to end of the Bible? And it makes studying the Bible this work of your life. Um, it, it, it demands meditation and attention constantly, daily. What is the Lord saying? Read it again. Think about it anew. I haven't read this before, but I've read this before. Uh, how do they relate to one another? And in, in one sense, I think the Bible is perfectly clear and simple on the basic things we need to know about who Jesus is and what he has done for us and where salvation and fellowship with God is found. Really simple. Repeated, you know, often. But then there's a lot of things that are you know, the work of a lifetime, and maybe more than a lifetime to understand. Um, so that's, that's sort of where, I, where I'm starting from as I come to Matthew 25. And I'll say, have a couple of things to say about Matthew 24, uh, but I'm not going to like, go back through, Ray, and you know, reinterpret Matthew 24. Um, I, first of all, I don't, don't know that, I'm, that I do a competent job. I don't know that I know that, I know that much better. Um, there's a couple of things I'll, I'll probably point out that become important to the larger understanding where, where we might disagree, but I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in going back and giving a different view of, of, of chapter 24. What I'm interested in is, is just letting you know where I'm coming from in terms of what I think is, are the hermeneutical principles, the principles of interpreta interpretation that you come to the text with. So... Pause. <laughs> Comments, questions, clarifications, jokes, insults, as I say to my sixth graders. Yeah, you can skip that part. Yes, Tim. Right. Um, we'll, we'll get a little more into that. I, I do not consider myself, well, first of all, replacement theology is, is a term that admits of a spectrum. I wouldn't really consider myself to fall in the camp of, I, don't, I wouldn't say Israel has replaced the church. Or I'm sorry, the church, I said it, said it backwards. I wouldn't say the church has replaced Israel. But I would say that 
a lot of what God says to Israel is fulfilled in the church. And, I, and that would not fall into the camp of replacement theology, but it does beg the question which you bring up, well, where's the switch? Uh, and historically, and this, this isn't, I'm not, I'm not articulating just my position, but I'm just telling you historically what different theologians, they would say things like this. When the temple was destroyed, that was a judgment from God which brought an end to Israel's status in a particular way. Does that mean the church at that day replaces Israel? I certainly wouldn't say so. Um, on the other hand, if you look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, John chapter 10, there's this emphasis on the the doing away of the middle wall of partition between Israel and the church. Uh, I really think that's serious business. I think it's what, it's what um, the first persecution by the Jews, again, you know, starting with Stephen, um, it was not so much about we hate Jesus and can't stand that he... Um, you know, that you believe th that this Jewish carpenter was resurrected, what they hated and blew up and went, you know, the whole, you know, the, the leaders of Israel went ballistic and there was this widespread per persecution. It is when Paul talked about taking the message of the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. And it's intolerable to the Jews of the day that you would try to lump us in with the Gentiles. But the breaking down of the middle wall of partition and Jew and Gentile being one, truly one in Christ, not people of different covenants, but people of the covenant, that's, that's not replacement, but, it's, but, it, but it's, it eliminates a pretty important distinction between national Israel and God's new covenant people, the church. Um, you know, and there's, there's lots of different views, but that, those are the kinds of passages um, that you, you, it starts to be a discussion about are there two distinct covenants that have nothing to do with one another? Well, you know, Jeremiah 31 is an Old Testament prophet writing to Israel, and yet he is quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, word for word, and his prophecy is applied to the new covenant people of God, the church. You gotta you got account for, for that kind of thing. You know, John chapter 10, you know, I have, um, I have people that, that have not yet been brought to me, Jesus says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I hope you, you know, will, you know, just be familiar enough and contend with John 10. And, you know, Jesus says, there will be one shepherd, one fold. Okay, well, you've got to contend with that. Um, so, yeah, and it's not, you know, and, and the reason I don't subscribe to what is referred to as replacement, because I, I don't think it looks like, oh, Israel disappears and the church takes, it, takes its place. Um, I don't think that's what's going on at all. I tend... Now I'm editorializing a little bit. I tend to think that there is a distinct revival of Israel, especially when you get to the book of Romans and you read chapters 
10, 11 of the book of Romans. I think there's a distinct reference to a mass turning of, of Israel to Christ. But I don't think that there is a separate covenant in which Israel has favor with God as one covenant people without Jesus. And the church has a covenant relationship with God because of Jesus. Um, and, and, and this is where you know, some people might get really sensitive about what I think, and still what I think, I can't help it. I don't believe the nation of Israel enjoys covenant status with God apart from Jesus. I think there is only, I think that's the whole point of, of Jesus talking about being the way, the truth, and the life. Covenant relationship with God depends upon a relationship with Jesus. And there isn't another way. There's not a, there's not a, a distinct and a separate covenant. Um, um, that's, and I, you know, I've already made reference to some of the passages that I would take that from, and we may you know, talk, talk more about it. I don't think that means that God has no regard for Israel nationally. I don't think that means he doesn't have any plans for them. Like I said, I, I tend to think, although I'm not, not, it's not a hill I die on, I tend to think that there's going to be a great revival of the Jews for the sake of them, of their history as God's old covenant people. But I don't think it is like something that is owed to the Jews because of their, their covenant status. I think it's just a mark of God's faithfulness and his... Um, is the continuity of his purpose in history. But I think all of history is, is heading in this direction that any covenant relationship with God depends upon the Messiah, upon Jesus. And there's not, and, and there's not you know, a, a, there's not a covenant relationship which is somehow still a covenant relationship even though it is apart from Christ and even though it is less than a saving relationship. Just don't, don't find that defensible. Um, it is all about the centrality of the whole history led up to the Messiah. It's all about the Messiah. You know, Jesus is, is, is the center of history for both Jew and Gentile, in my view. So, go ahead, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's shades of variation all through all of this discussion. Um, that is why I read Psalm 89, because I think Psalm 89 clearly refers to the literal David who was, who was the shepherd boy, who was made Israel's king, but I also think Psalm 89 has a greater fulfillment in David's greater son, Jesus, and one doesn't eliminate the other. And when I refer, for example, to Israel 
being, it, it being a dispensational principle of interpretation that Israel must always refer to national ethnic Israel. I'm not saying that, that it usually doesn't or that you know, we should forget about national ethnic Israel. I'm saying sometimes it does. Matter of fact, I would say especially in the Old Testament, usually it does. But I just wouldn't make it a principle that every time I see the word Israel, my automatic default position is I gotta be thinking um, national ethnic Israel. Paul writes to the Galatian, he just makes this little cryptic uh, comment at the end of the book of Galatians where he talks about the Israel of God. I'm pretty sure in context that he is making a reference to new covenant people and just sort of referring to them as, uh, as Israel in the sense that Israel stands for God's covenant people. But I don't think he's, after all this instruction about um, being you know, free from the Jewish law and from the demands of what the Jews understood Jewish covenant law to demand of you, that he's just throwing this phrase in here and, oh yeah, Israel, bless them too. I think he's pretty clearly saying that, that there's a status that believers have in Jesus which allows me to kind of cryptically refer to them as Israel of God. Now that, that is not a, a theologically conclusive passage at all. I'm just using it as an, as an example where um, if my principle of interpretation is, oh, Israel's got to mean national ethnic Israel, then I turn to Galatians chapter 6, and I read, um, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and the, and the Israel of God. That's a, no explanation, but he's talking about people who walk according to the rule that in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. I say, in context, I can't, I can't think that he's just throwing in a reference to national Israel. And my, my hermeneutic does not demand that I read it that way. The dispensational hermeneutic basically says, well, if I'm not going to read it that way, I have to have a pretty explicit reason not to. Paul must be referring to the nation here for some reason. I, I just don't think it works well. Um, so I'm not saying, you know... A, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11. There's, that is hotly debated among theologians as to whether, to what degree Israel is referring to national Israel or to figurative Israel. And I'm more and more persuaded over the years as I've read. I used to be kind of the opposite. I used to think, ah, there's a lot of figurative language going on there. The more I read it, the more I put it in context with the broader story of God's redemption, I think, I think that's talking about a great revival of national ethnic Israel. I think that's what Romans 11 is mostly talking about. But I don't think so because my hermeneutic demands it. I think so because the context seems to lead me there. And it's, you know, so that's, that's the distinction in hermeneutical principles. We're, we're out of time. Um, talk to me afterwards, bring more questions next time. Um, I, I, act, I don't think I can teach on Matthew 24 and 25 without having a, a, a discussion about hermeneutics. So I, I feel like I needed to, uh, to you know, tell you, give you some idea where I'm coming from and why. Um, 
but this is preliminary. We'll get into the text of Matthew 25 next week, and, and there'll be a lot of questions. Not, I, I don't think it leads you to wildly different conclusions, but there will be questions that will come up a long way about, you know, how, how do these hermeneutical positions, how do the, the, how do the distinctions uh, affect how you come to the text? So 